Welcome to Series 6, Episode 3 of York Hospital Ball. This week's guest is Russ Howarth, a player with the world at his feet with England Youth Honours and the number one at Booth and Crescent in 1999. Russ went on to represent Tranmere Rovers and Bradford City, but his career didn't quite pan out the way many thought it would, and Russ took the decision to quit the game aged just 25. Here is his story, a brutally honest one that covers everything from representing your country to to mental health and self-esteem issues. This episode is sponsored by Paul Bowser, who has recently been appointed York City's official historian and is also author of the sold-out book, Bootham Crescent, A Second Home. Follow-up book is expected in the spring and inquiries should head to minstermanbooks at outlook.com. Minstermanbooks at outlook.com. If you enjoy these podcasts then please consider donating to the charity which can be done as easily as texting 5YHB to the number 70450. That's texting 5YHB to the number 70450. Texts cost £5, donation plus standard message rate. But enough of the build-up, here is Series 6, Episode 3, Russ Howarth. Right, so Russ, thanks for joining us. I think York to Brighton when we interviewed John Byrne is probably the longest Zoom call that we've done since we've been doing the podcast, but I believe you're ready to kind of smash that. So can you tell us where you're talking to us from? Yeah, definitely smashing that, Dan. I'm actually in uh, Kabul in Afghanistan. I work out here most of the time. So yeah, that's where I am. It's, uh, it's a good few thousand miles away from Brighton. Yeah, and what's your day been like today? Pretty good, yeah. Just being in the office as normal. We have like a guest house in Kabul and then we go work at the, our compound. So I work for the Halo Trust, which is a landmine clearing charity. So I, I look at day-to-day goings on with that, managing different bits and pieces and just helping the programme to sort of get rid of landmines and explosive remnants of war. So yeah, just a standard day in Kabul today. Yeah, a little bit different to uh, playing in goal for York City. And, and that's my first question is about goalkeeping. When and how did you decide to become a goalkeeper? I started quite young in goal and then I, I switched uh, probably when I was about maybe 10 or 12, I sort of started playing outfield and my first team was a, was a team in Selby so when that had been like early 90s so youth football wasn't like it is now you know teams didn't really start until they were sort of under 11s under 12 so I played outfield and then I was playing for my school team at Balby and I was put forward to have trials for York schoolboys as an outfield player and I, I sort of turned up and I was a good player but I, I realised that I wasn't at that standard at that time and I very quickly sort of switched to being a goalkeeper I think it was a two day trial I came back the next day uh, and tried out in goal with the manager's permission or the manager of York Schoolboys permission and yeah that, that was where it started so I got into York Schoolboys and, and didn't sort of look back from there Yeah it's interesting you mentioned that spell out field because I was going to ask you about that because I think on your Wikipedia page it says 29 goals for Olympia Station with Wikipedia I, I tried to kind of go beyond that with research because you never know who sort of edited these pages so is yeah. that factual then? That is factual I have no idea where 
where that information has come from or how. I suspect it's probably a very random uh, newspaper article from many years ago. But yeah, I mean, talking not a great standard in them days. But you know, I was I wasn't a bad player, but because because of my physical size as well, I was quite tall at 11, 12. So you know, that definitely helped playing in full size goals and things like that. So yeah, I wasn't a bad player outfield. And I believe it was former York City player Alan Whitehead who had quite a big influence on you as a as a youngster, and he was sort of involved with the York and district schools. And did he sort of recommend you to York City? Is that right? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, Alan was was running the uh, the schoolboys in those days, and um, he obviously gave me my first chance at that level. Took a bit of a gamble on me, and yeah, from there he he put me in contact with I forget who it was. It was a it was a scout at York City at the time, and it was just pretty standard. Then come down for sort of two or three sessions down at it was at York University in them days, where the schoolboys York schoolboys used to train. So yeah, they just said come down, try out, and see how you go. I think I would have been twelve or thirteen then, so I got in. School of Excellence as it was then, not the academy. Uh, but things were very different then. You know, I used to play Middlesbrough, Blackburn, Man United we played one time. You know, I don't think you get much chance to, at, that, at that level now to play against those teams just because of the structure. But yeah, Alan definitely gave me my first chance. And, and before we start to talk more about York City, I mean, your progression as a young player was really impressive, wasn't it? From the district schools, county level, and then England under-16s, England under-18s, England under-20s. And you beat Turkey, I think, for the under-16s at Brisbane Road. And I think Brian Marwood on the commentary said that you were outstanding and playing in front of 3,000 people at that game. I mean, what was it like those days and, and to represent your country? It was a bit surreal, actually. I always felt like I had a little bit more to prove. You know, I was the only player from League One or League Two who was in the England 16s. And again, it started with two players from each club going down to South have, have regional trials at Lillyshaw. And I, I just kept playing well, training well. We had a lot of practice matches. And I, I always felt a little bit like I didn't necessarily belong. You know, these guys were all at Premier League clubs. Some of them had signed four-year professional deals before they'd even turned 17. And all the sort of money and all the all the fame that comes with that so I always felt a little bit like I didn't belong but aside from that my performances were always fantastic and I did really well and I, I remember the afternoon before the Turkey game um, it, was, it was on Sky Sports as well which was just like an incredible amount of pressure at 16 and knowing that all your teammates and all your family and friends are watching and I remember I didn't get much sleep that afternoon but yeah the game itself was I played really well what I can remember of it there was one or two saves in there to have a copy of that as well recorded from Sky is something you know I can always look back on in many years to come and it, it's unbelievably proud moment when you when you stand and sing the national anthem like that and just from there really I, I sort of proved myself and obviously moving on from there I managed to get into the under 17s under 18s and just whenever I was away with England the more I went away the more comfortable I felt and that sort of feeling of not being good enough and not belonging sort of passed and the caps just sort of kept on coming it was, it was fantastic and do you think it made you almost more hungrier than the other players there because like like you mentioned and I, and I got it written down that you were kind of the anomaly in there weren't you in terms of the club that you'd come from because I, I think for some youngsters they can get you know multi-million pound contracts before they've even played a professional game and, and they fade away quite quickly don't they whereas yeah. were you going there always like thinking oh, I've got to prove myself and, and maybe that's what brought the best performances out of you yeah I think so it's almost like I had nothing to lose as well because I was almost proving people wrong you know I would imagine there's people who were, who were questioning Sunday at York City at League 2 standard or League 1 standard as it was uh, when I first got in why is he there why is he better than what is at our Premier League clubs it was difficult when I, when I reflect back on it I had quite a lot quite young in, in terms of success and I'm 
not sure it helped me long term. Certainly short term, you know, it was, there was a there was a professional contract at York City, but along with the England thing came a lot of sort of scrutiny and a lot of scouting, a lot of clubs watching, and there were sponsorship deals with, with glove companies and boot companies and things. And it was nice at, at the time; it was great, but it's difficult. I, I wouldn't say I had an ego, but certainly it increased my arrogance, which isn't necessarily a bad thing as, as a young footballer. You do need a little bit of arrogance, especially as a goalkeeper. You need to be confident and transfer that onto the pitch. But yeah, looking back, I'm not sure if my career would have taken a different path if I'd have been brought along a little a little bit more slowly. But I've no regrets on that front. It was just when I look back, it was a lot of pressure at the time. And, and just finally, before we move on from England, I, mean, I looked at some of the players that were in the squads around the time that you played, sort of Jermaine Defoe, Julian Lescott, Stuart Parnaby, Leon Britton, Jay Boffroy, who all played in the Premier League. Did any of those players stand out at the time age range that you were playing at? Yeah, there's there's a couple. I, I played in a match, I think it was for the under-20s against Belgium, and uh, Kevin Nolan played in that. And he was head and shoulders above everyone. I mean, he broke into the Premier League at Bolton when he was 17, 18. So he already had 70, 80 Premier League games under his belt. And then he was playing with us. And you, you could just see he had that extra touch of quality. And then I was at an under-21s camp and a certain Wayne Rooney was called into the squad. And he was uh, 16 at that time. And uh, he just slotted in with under-21 players at 16. These guys are regulars in the Premier League. You know, people like Paul Robinson and, and Stuart Taylor were the goalkeepers. And then there was Jermaine Genus, Defoe, people like that. Wayne Rooney came in, you know, very quiet, very unassuming, but just absolutely frightening on the pitch. Just his touch and awareness and didn't have to be a follower of football to understand that, you know, he was going to be a big player going forward. And let's start talking about York City because, you, like you mentioned, you're in the youth setup at the time and when we had Lee Bullock on, he, he was full of praise of the likes of Brian Knees and Paul Stancliffe and, and the kind of role they played in his career. When you were part of that youth setup, whose boots did you clean and what, what did you think of the sort of apprenticeship scheme when you were coming through the ranks? I'm a big fan of it. I think the fact it's gone pretty much now now is, is a bad thing. I had Neil Thompson and Alan Little as my boots. I definitely had Neil Thompson because I remember his boots were like so stretched and I just used to wear them until they were nearly worn out. Cleaning the changing rooms and sort of everyone having responsibilities. I think it, it instills discipline, it instills camaraderie between boys. There was one particular time Stan was brilliant you know he's a fantastic coach I don't know the full details of why he left York but I bumped into Stan about eight nine years ago when he was at, I think he was at Rotherham uh, doing some coaching there and we had a good chat but you know to look at the players that came through in that sort of period when Brian was there Gary Naylor was one of the youth coaches uh, Stocky was doing a lot there and A.D. Shaw came in later on uh, but yeah, I remember one time we were around at the digs before a first team match on a Tuesday night uh, On a, before every home game you had to clean the changing rooms from top to bottom all the key had to be laid out and everything so we were around at the digs at half past five uh, having our tea and it was, <laughs> it was like chicken nuggets and chips and, and bread and butter and not really what you'd, you'd eat now so the boys are all tucking into this food and just as we sort of finished the phone went in the digs and it was Stan and he, he spoke to the head boy who would have been uh, Christian Fox he's like right get everyone round here you've got 10 minutes now so we're all trainers on round got in there Stan's like I want you in your kit five minutes next to the pitch go so we were like what the hell is going on here and basically 
It was a punishment run because he'd come to check the changing rooms and they weren't up to standard. So he just ran us like round the pitch, just lap after lap. Lads were feeling sick, lads were being sick, in full full stomach of tea. Don't think that would happen these days, but I tell you what, the changing rooms were clean after that. <laughs> we never didn't have to be told again, you know what I mean? And it was that sort of discipline and, and camaraderie. And I think there's, there's a lot of discussion with players like John Terry and I've seen in the media where, you know, a lot of things that happened in those days probably would be construed as bullying now or tough love and... Uh, I never saw anything inappropriate or any bullying or anything, but it was it was a tough environment. You know, lads sort of had fights quite regularly, scuffles. You know, there was a, there was a lot of jostling, but it made you tough. And then if you did get in the first team, you were ready for that step up and that that responsibility. And um, yeah, there was tons of things. You had to get your Christmas money for cleaning your boots. You had to go into the first team dressing room and stand on the bench and, and sing, which is absolutely daunting. Going in front of twenty men when you're sixteen and, and singing, especially if you haven't got a very good singing voice but yeah it was good times and what did you sing <laughs> move on oh, I'm a terrible singer so it will have been some sort of Christmas carol when I joined Tranmere anyone who joined Tranmere or signed a new contract had to sing a song at the Christmas party and I got booed off I was so bad so that tells you the standard I was uh, at well, well don't worry we're not going to make you sing on the podcast just moving on to one of the highlights I imagine of, of your time in the youth team was was the Holland trip where the youth team came back winners of this prestigious tournament and we talked quite a lot about it on, on Lee Bullock's interview and that's how you got in touch yeah. with me about, about that, that tournament and you, yeah. you mentioned about a, f- a ferry trip and, and I think this involves Paul Stancliffe again doesn't it? Yeah absolutely so I don't think Bully mentioned this so we were all 16, 17 and two or three of the lads had been told they were they're not going to get a professional contract but they were still invited to come on, on the trip have a trip away play some football have a laugh and uh, Stan said yeah you can have a couple of beers on, on the ferry over it's like the overnight ferry to Holland and you can have two beers each and that's it. And you can imagine what 16, 17 year old lads did with giving an inch. And yeah, I think some of the boys were sort of rolling in at sort of three, four in the morning into the cabins. There was like a casino on there, like lads were sort of playing blackjack and roulette and having a beer and, and just sort of doing what young lads do. But then Dan wasn't daft, you know what I mean? Stan knew what was going on. And then when we got to Holland the next day, we went training in the afternoon and we, again, we just got punished with a running, just run and run and run and, and just got it out of our system. But again, we had good camaraderie, good, you know, it was a good set of lads and, and that tournament. We we absolutely dominated it. We, we didn't concede a goal in the in, entire tournament, and I think the final was nil nil, and we we ended up winning on penalties. I think I saved a couple of penalties, but yeah, it's fantastic. What what a great a great trip to, to boost the lads' morale, and, and yeah, it was fantastic. And, and your confidence must have been sky high after that tournament, like you say, saving two penalties in in the shootout in the final. But it must have been even higher when you, when you got back and Neil Thompson that summer said that you were going to be the number one, and you're only 17 years of age, and you'd not even signed pro at think at that point how did he tell you what, what at what point did he tell you in pre-season that you were going to start the first game of the season I don't think he really did to be honest I think I mean I didn't play a lot as a, as a youth player for that first season you know I was I was only 16 I, I hadn't played that many games it just so happened that when we came back for pre-season there was just Bobby Mims I was the senior youth goalkeeper and then uh, John Collinson was in as, as the 16 year old as, as the first year so straight away I was in with the first team just because they needed an extra goalkeeper 
but um, it sort of just went from there you know I started playing pre-season and I can't remember the exact teams I think we played Barnsley maybe Sheffield United Grimsby and I, I ended up being quite busy and those teams were a couple of leagues above us so I was quite busy and played very well and I was making saves and again I just 17 you're quite fearless you, you're just happy to get on with it you're happy to be playing and it just happened you know the, the pre-season went on and, and Bobby was happy to take sort of like um, a back step and, and, and be number two at that stage so it just sort of happened and went into the first game of the season I felt good Bobby Mims was, was fantastic coach he, he spent a lot of time with me and, and it, it was good to have him sort of mentoring me and, and, and telling me what I could improve but also just giving me confidence and um, that was a big thing making my debut at, at 17 home game Swansea were one of the favourites in, in that league at that time I don't remember much about the game I'd love to watch it back and just see I can vaguely remember making a couple of saves but yeah it was a good crowd just what you want a clean sheet on your debut that's that's absolute dream for your hometown club it, it doesn't get any better than that it was a strange time for the club but you know looking back they'd just been relegated it was a, like a new era because Alan Little had left and he'd been at the club so long and I think signing Mark Atkins who scored on that first day you know it was a Premier League winner wasn't he and, and yourself yeah. coming through the youth team I think I think fans always like a player who's come through who's was, was from the city or whatever but what was it like for you because a keeper's job is, is almost to be vocal and, and sort of organised isn't it the defence as much as shot stopping and everything yeah. else was that quite yeah. nerve wracking because I look back at that back four and it was like Wayne Hall Barry Jones and Chris Fairclough <laughs> they were all really experienced yeah. players and, and, and characters and what was it like for you? I tried to be as confident as I could and I think it's a big help having probably talking over a thousand league games with those guys and definitely the, there was no sort of criticism from the guys if I made any mistakes in the game it was more a arm around the shoulder rather than a, an outright telling off and we thought we had a, a decent team we just that season never really took off we're in between you know mid-table and we started pretty well and then it, it faded away obviously with the Barnet match where we lost 6-3 was a I remember that one quite well so yeah there, it, was, it was good having those guys in there to look after me you mentioned that Barnet game I was yeah. going to come on to that I mean you'd, you'd, at that point you'd signed a, a three-year deal with the club and, and like you mentioned it was a real strong start to the season I think you kept a second clean sheet in the next league game away at Torquay I mean you only conceded one at Wigan in the League Cup and and then like you say for the team it started to unravel didn't it a 3-0 defeat at home to Rochdale then 6-3 that crazy game at Barnet was it right for Neil Thompson to take you out how, how did he tell you or and, and do you think looking back that you wish you'd have been backed and sort of played the next game to sort of almost play play through it because you know you, you, you yeah. made I think a, a mistake yeah. for one of the goals but all goalkeepers make mistakes at some point don't they and it almost seemed like yeah. that was the first bad patch and because you were the young lad it was like, alright let's take him out the firing line I wondered what your reflections are on that yeah I, I remember he, he pulled me into the office into, into the manager's office and, and Bobby was in there he, he was just dead positive he said look you've done fantastic for me I think I played five or six games something like that couple of clean sheets in there a couple of decent performances and he just said look that was a tough game the other day you didn't do a great deal wrong as you say I think he made a mistake for one of the first goals but apart from that I was left pretty exposed in the second half and I think it was just a, a case of you know I was only 17 and a half then so I wasn't even fully grown if you like and Bobby was there with you know 400 league appearances and tons of experience to go in there and, and do a job but I think possibly you know again it, it's a little bit of a sliding doors moment in, in, in my career where if he'd have just kept me in I might have 
gone on and, and played the next 15, 20 games might, and then I might finish the season as a number one and then that's it. You, you're sort of on your way then. You've got 30, 40 you know, league games experience. But I think the only thing that playing the five or six games, I was sort of relaxing a little bit. Naturally, you're on edge when you first come in the team like that and even more so at my age. And I was just starting to relax into it and I think if, you, if you'd have stuck with me for the next four or five games, then you know maybe if I'd have played well, it wouldn't have been a problem. But the, the managers, you don't know what pressure they're getting from the board above you don't know what messages are, are being sent and those guys it's such a results orientated business that three or four losses on, in a row at that stage of the season and you worry that the chairman's going to say right it's time to make a change so yeah absolutely no hard feelings about that I, I completely understand why you did it and obviously you can't foresee what's going to happen the, the two years after with Alan Fettis coming in and obviously being such a fantastic keeper so I think it probably was the right decision I, I do remember sort of breathing a sigh of relief that I could relax for a couple of weeks and have that pressure. Yeah, and you were still so young, weren't you, that, that you kind of knew yeah. that you were going to come again and stuff like that. And, and you mentioned about Alan Fettis and I was going to come on to him because your next game that you played, I think you had to wait until February to come on at Plymouth when uh, Bobby Mims got injured. And then by that point, Terry Dolan had, had taken charge and you started the next home game, I think, to Exeter and kept a clean sheet. But then by the next game, Alan Fettis signs and, and obviously we know what, what sort of a career he yeah. had at York City. Did, did you know at that point then that he was coming in and were you sort of thinking, oh, I, I can learn from Alan Fettis you know he was an international yeah. keeper I think at the time or, or were you thinking well I've had all these England honours and I've had some first team experience were you itching to get back in how, how were you feeling at that stage of your career obviously I came in and, and kept a clean sheet and I thought that's, you know, that's all I can do all that can be asked of a goalkeeper is they perform and uh, I don't recall it being a particularly busy game but did everything I had to do. I, I knew they would be looking for somebody. I, again, I was still, you know, I wasn't even eight, I still wasn't 18. And we had had a couple of keepers in on trial in the sort of months before. So I knew they were looking around, you know, I think Bobby was probably 34, 35 then. So he he knew he was going to transition into coaching after that season, probably. But when Fetz came in at the time, he obviously disappointed. But for me, from a development point of view, it was absolutely fantastic when Fetz came in. You know, we had a really good bond really quickly started I, I used to pick him up from the station because he was still living in Nottingham at the time so I used to pick him up every day and drop him off at the station every day and from there we, we formed a really good bond and at the time then Bobby left so we didn't actually have a, a full-time goalkeeping coach which now would be you know I think would absolutely be unheard of a league club not having a full-time goalkeeping coach we used to do it ourselves and obviously with Alan's experience and international caps and Premier League experience it was fantastic for me oh you saw on what Bobby had started Bobby taught me so much and I learned so much from Bobby building on from that because we had to motivate ourselves Fetz instilled a real work ethic in me and a hunger and a desire to get better and to the point of we regularly we were out half an hour before the rest of the first team because we wanted to get a good half an hour in get warmed up and then if the gaffer wanted us over early we were ready to go we were flying and it just coincided that Fetz probably played probably saved some of the best football he's played in his career I think he was clubbing of the year for a couple of years running just a fantastic consistent goalkeeper as well you know very very rarely did he find himself in the wrong position or making a mistake and again I, I learned from that and he's a big influence in my career at that stage took that sort of work ethic you know everywhere I went after that and he actually messaged me 
about six months ago. I spoke to him maybe five years before that. We had a good chat and then we sort of fell out of touch. And then I just got I got a message out of the blue just saying, how are you doing? So things have sort of changed a bit with COVID, but hopefully we can meet up for a pint when I get back. Maybe I'm just thinking here that he's now goalkeeping coach at Manchester United, isn't he? I wonder, I wonder whether maybe the seeds were sown when he, when he started doing you and him just going out to training early when there was no goalkeeping coach there. Maybe that maybe planted a seed in his head to that's what he wanted to do when he finished. Yeah, quite possibly. He's described like a creature of habit, Fetzi. You know, he liked do things his way that got him mentally prepared for the weekend. And that's not unusual with goalkeepers. You see goalkeepers having a set warm-up and, you know, that's how people frame themselves mentally. And we had our drills that we did on a Friday. We had our drills we did on a Monday or a Wednesday where it was a little bit more athletic, a bit more energetic. Just depends. And one thing that I sort of learned a bit later on when uh, Neville Southall came in, he made a very good point, which I've told to a lot of young goalkeepers over the past. I used to have a set warm-up and did the same thing every single match, regardless of whether it was first team reserves. And Neville Southall said to me, what happens if the coach breaks down and you only have 15 minutes to prepare? So straight away, from a mental point of view, you're on the back foot because you're thinking and panicking, I haven't had my set warm-up. And he was saying it's quite difficult comparing Neville Southall to other goalkeepers because, you know, I was an Everton fan growing up. He was my idol and world-class keeper for, for 10 years. And just because he was able to just play kick-ups and, and, and do very little and then just go into the match, it's difficult to say that's what other people should do. But I certainly took on, on board his point about being mentally prepared and, and if unexpected events happened. And it's interesting you mentioned about sort of being mentally prepared because the next few years you sort of reduce the cup games, aren't you? And I think you had some good performances in there, Darlington in the LDV Vans Trophy or whatever it was back then. And I think you were a man of a match at Notts County in another cup game. But was it quite hard mentally to sort of know that even if you played out of your skin, you would be back on the bench again the next week? And, and also sort of secondary to that, is, is it quite hard to sort of come in when you've not been playing for say six months, play a game? And I know it's, it's maybe different to match fit being a, an outfield player, but sort of mentally switching on, was that quite difficult for you? Definitely, yeah. I think playing reserve games is okay, but everything happens a yard quicker at first team level. That cross comes in a little bit quicker and it comes in with a bit more quality. It doesn't matter how much training you do or, or how many reserve games you play, just nothing compares to playing first team football. And that's a bit of a cliche, which you'll hear all, all professional footballers say, but it's absolutely true. You just cannot get your eye in, if you like. And, you know, the, the LDV games were a little bit of a, a poison chalice because our squads over those two, three years weren't great. You know, we had a lot of fringe players and, and those guys are the same. You know, they're not as sharp as they would be if they were playing multiple first team games. So then you end up sort of getting, getting the brunt of it. Yeah, although I did play well in a couple of those games. I think one of my last games for York was Lincoln in that, in the LDV. And I can't remember the score. I think I certainly conceded four, but I think we lost four, three. But yeah, it's, it's difficult to get match sharp when you can't get on the pitch. And I look back at some of the sort of press articles around that time that you played and you were vocal in, in the press sort of saying you were really trying to push Alan Fettis and you really wanted that first team spot. But in your heart of hearts, did you believe it? Because he was playing so well, wasn't it? And you mentioned about him being clubman of the year. I mean, I, I kind of remember him being man of a match almost every week. Every single yeah, home yeah. game, he was always named man of a match for like a two-year period. He was just, and that Man United friendly as well, where he stopped yeah. being about 15 nil. He was incredible, wasn't he? It must have been difficult for you to truly believe it. Or did you truly believe that? Yeah, it wasn't a matter of truly believing it. I, I sort of had those appearances under my belt. I knew I could play at that level. Didn't have any concerns that I, I couldn't play at that level. But also, you know, I was still only 18, 19. Nowhere near sort of peaking, at least 10 years off peaking, you know, in, in goalkeeping terms. So I'm always going to say things like that in the press. Our footballers are always going to say that. Nobody's going to say I'm happy sitting on the bench. And that. I didn't 
didn't have a chance. That 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 was part of the problem. Fetz was so consistent, and also injuries. He was very solid injury wise. He never had sort of serious injuries and things. So I was prepared and ready to come in and, and play, and I didn't have any doubts about my ability. But he was just absolutely in the peak of his career. So I knew I would have to wait my chance. Or there was a lot of talk about me moving and and, and going going away from York. And the assistant manager at the time, Eddie Shaw, was he was very supportive, and but he used to say things like before reserve match he'd be saying like oh I've seen the scouting list I know I was here watching and I'd be like wow that's a bit more pressure now you've sort of told me that Premier League clubs are here specifically watching me and, and that didn't necessarily help me at the time I just wanted to relax and play and it, it was difficult and you mentioned Everton before being a, being a big fan and Neville Southall and, and speaking of them you, you went on a trial there in 2002 didn't you and played on their Scottish tour against Falkirk and that must have been a dream come true for you because like you said a boyhood Everton fan was that something that Neville Southall had an influence on sorting out? No, I don't, I don't think Neville had anything to do with it. Not that I'm aware of anyway. It was just my name was well known with the England set up and they wanted to have a look at me and, and see what was going on. Chris Woods was the goalkeeping coach but that whole trip was surreal for me. Boyd Everton my whole life and they said we're going up to Falkirk to play in this testimonial so would you like to come? I was like fantastic and when I sort of turned up I was expecting it to be like predominantly reserves, young lads. There was a good 10-12 first team players who played in that and played okay we won 3-0 pretty easy match we were leagues above them but yeah I mean it was, it was fantastic that was on a par with playing for England you know pulling that shirt on Paul Gerrard was the other goalkeeper and uh, I'll never forget this this is like so petty but when the manager named the team like an hour and a half before kickoff, I started the game and he was on the bench but he he went and got the number one shirt even though he wasn't starting there was no names on him or anything I just remember thinking like how insecure and petty you must be to do that I was 19 I was still a young goalkeeper he was in his 30s and I, I just say imagine being that insecure in a friendly in a testimonial match that you have to try and put off a 19 year old game by doing a little trick like that quite glad I played well so two fingers up to him but then again he's played in the Premier League for 200 games and I am so I guess he wins that one ultimately you went on trial to Spurs and, and Wolves as well who I think put bids in for you as well to try sign you what does a yeah. trial consist of for a goalkeeper you mentioned that Falkirk game there it was pretty standard for you and, and playing with so many good first teamers that you probably barely had a shot to save so they can't surely make it just about games can they is there other things that you have to do, do differently for a goalkeeper on trial yeah pretty much it's it's normally a week or two weeks retraining with the first team and, and then if they can squeeze a game in there normally was a game I, the, the game I played in what happened was I went up to Newcastle and the goalkeeping coach at Newcastle was actually my goalkeeping coach at England under 16s so I knew him really well and that was good I, I trained well there I don't think I played a game there but I trained with Shea Given and Steve Harper again that was just fantastic experience the big one again sliding doors moment was Wolves where I got a phone call just before pre season and Bobby was actually a goalkeeping coach at Wolves at that time so who knew me better than Bobby uh, at that stage and, and Bobby had said look we, we've spoken to York I was out of contract at York as well to run down on the original two and a half years I'd signed when I was 17 I had a lot of interest and lots of bits and pieces so under 24s you, it was the Bosman rule and you couldn't leave on a free transfer it would go to a tribunal if the clubs couldn't agree a fee so Bobby rang me and said look you're out of contract you come, come to Wolves we're keen to 
to sign you. Come let the manager have a look at you, play some games, get a good pre-season in and we'll leave the clubs to sort it out. So I went down and did the pre-season. We went to Portugal and I got a sort of information through my agent and things that the clubs were negotiating. The Wolves wanted to sign me. They were keen. They liked what they'd seen. You know, I'd done well in the games at, at Wolves, felt comfortable and negotiations progressed to the point of, you know, I, I sat down and agreed like a three-year contract in principle with Wolves. I was looking for houses in Wolves and the, the information I was getting was it'll happen, we will sign you. Even if we have to go to a tribunal, we will sign you. It doesn't matter. Just concentrate on your football. And then right towards the end of pre-season, York had a game. It was either against Sunderland or Middlesbrough. I think Fetz dislocated his finger or broke his little finger uh, in training. So I got a phone call from, I can't remember who it was, somebody at York, either, either the gaffer or his assistant saying, look, we need you to come back and play in this pre-season game. We haven't signed another goalkeeper. I think Fetz will be fit for the season, but he just can't play in this game. So we need you to come back. So I went and sat down with Bobby and uh, Dave Jones, the Wolves manager, and explained the situation. And, and they were quite explicit. They said, if you go play and you get injured, then your three-year contract and your deal here at Wolves is, is done. You break your leg, you break your wrist or whatever. So they, alongside my agent, you know, they sort of said, you need to go back to York and tell them you are refusing to play. So I sort of said, just repeat that. You want me to refuse to play for the club that's paying my wages? And they were like, yeah, you heard it. If you get injured, that's your contract gone. Contract was a good contract, you know, financially. I'd sort of triple my money, signing on fees. It, you know, it was it was a good deal. You know, Wolves were in the championship then. They were quite big payers as well. I felt very under pressure. And I, I'll never forget, I, I turned up at York and, and went into Terry Dolan's office and he was like really cheery. He was like, hi, son, how are you doing? Great to see you back. Fantastic that you've come back to play. And so he was like, have a seat, have a seat. So I had to sit down and then I was like, I've got something to say, Gaffer. Like dead, dead quiet. He's like, oh, was it some, I'm not playing tomorrow. And he sort of hesitated and went, just say that again. I said, I, I don't want to play tomorrow, Gaffer, in case I get injured. He sort of took a moment and then he just went berserk. <laughs> he just went, get out of my office now. Get out. In 35 years of football, I've never had one of my players refuse to play. Go on, get out of my sight. Get out. So I was just like, okay, that didn't go well. And got out, rang my dad, rang my age. And I was like, yeah, this didn't go well. And I sort of went home and then the next next day the, the evening press as it was well, York Press there was a big article and Terry just completely destroyed me in the press just said it, it was disgusting and I've never had a player refuse and uh, he thinks he's too big for his boots and, and it wasn't that all in hindsight I was badly advised but I could see my agent was obviously protecting his financial interest and, and protecting me to a certain extent and I don't know what went on in the sort of week or two weeks after but the, the information I was given was that the two clubs fell out Douglas Craig and Jez Moxie it was they, they fell out and refused to speak to each other and said there's no deal to be done so I was just completely in limbo I was sat at home York were paying my wages because they had to pay me otherwise I could have left on a free transfer so I was on a week to week contract and probably five, six weeks went past. I can't remember the exact timeline, but I got a phone call from Terry and he, he just said, look, we're paying you you might as well come back to the club and, and, and be on the bench and at least we're getting some value out of the wages we're paying you so that's what I did and I remember I, the first game back I ran out to warm up and there was a, a few boos from the Longhurst and I remember just feeling absolutely devastated because I felt like I'd been misrepresented a little bit in my hometown club and, and that hurt you know I, I was never trying to shaft York or shaft the fans or anything you know it was just the way the situation panned out yeah it was quite a difficult time this was all around the time of the 
soccer club, wasn't it, with, with John Batchelor? What was that like? Um, yeah, it was, that was a weird time, a really weird time. And, and just, you know, the, there's a long history in football of non-football people trying to get involved uh, with, with very little success. Normally it doesn't work if you haven't got a basic understanding. And, and he, I think he probably meant well, but when you start messing with like clubs' heritage and you start changing sort of badges and trying to put that stamp on on it I, I think you need to look at what happened at Hull a few years ago where the chairman was trying to get rid of uh, parts of their name and things and fans were always going to push back on things like that and it was just never going to work you know the change of the badge and things and then yeah there was just some very strange footballing decisions and a Brazilian guy who came in he you know within five minutes of the first training session you could see he was just a very 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 average player I told that story the other day on Twitter where we were doing some training on Boone and Crescent and I'm not exaggerating that we had to stop the training and, and all the balls were in the longest like we were doing some cross in and the he was trying to head it and it was bouncing off on a different angle on his head and you know lads were just laughing at it and that was actually you know the standard that the club was trying to bring in at that time and I don't know if that was the start of things sort of going downhill a little bit from there but yeah that was a, a strange time at the club and I, I felt like at the time that John Batchelor almost <laughs> used you as a bit of a pawn really and you were one of the few sort of saleable assets that I think York City had at that time and it's clear looking back that Wolves offered a lot more money than Tramier actually ended up paying for you but John Batchelor seemed to use you almost to sort of think well he, he's someone we can make a bit of money off and I think later on he admitted that he was sort of asset stripping at York City but did you feel a little bit like that that you were the, the person in the middle and just used almost to go to the highest bidder of whoever, whoever would pay for you? Yeah I think so I think the other thing that I don't know if this was widely reported in the press but the, the club was financially in trouble that month I think I moved in mid-November around that time but that month's wages wasn't paid on time and the PFA had to step in and pay the November wages and my, my last pay slip from York was, was actually paid via the PFA so I think to a certain extent he was under financial pressure and I think Tramier were able to exploit that and, and, and put a cheeky offer in and he knew that he could pay the next two months wages with that and that would see him over Christmas so I think that certainly was a big part of me moving at that time We've all that had gone on then with the sort of Wolves fiasco and, and the way that it was portrayed in, in the press and the fans some of them started turning you a little bit. Were you quite relieved then to leave Boone and Crescent, particularly with all that sort of chaos that was going on with the soccer club? And was it, it didn't matter that it was Tramier, but, but just you were away from Boone and Crescent yeah. and you could start yeah. afresh? Yeah, absolutely. As a footballer, being on a week to week contract's unsettling anyway. You are one injury away from your contract being cancelled and you've got no financial protection. And although at the time I was still living at home, you know, I didn't have any financial commitments and things, it still plays on your mind. Betts was still there and still playing well. And I sort of spent two or three months just in limbo. So, uh, we played a Friday night game I think it was Friday night game or Tuesday night might have been Tuesday night and I got a phone call from my agent and he said Tramier manager wants to speak to you on the phone so I, I gave him a quick ring and he said look we're in for you would you be interested in coming here so your brain starts worrying like where's Tramier what league are they in what position are they in and all that sort of thing and I did a little bit of research and, and they wanted me over there as soon as possible. So I think possibly the next day I, I drove over. And Tramier was, you know, I didn't know this at the time, but when I, when I joined the club, it was a it was a fantastic club. It was a, it was a step up from York in terms of size, being in the championship in the previous couple of years and being relegated. And it was just an opportunity to get away. The money was was okay. You know, I was able to sort of live on my own and, and, and buy a house and all that sort of thing. And looking back, it was a good move. It got me away from York at 
time where York was arguably on a, on a downward spiral. Chairman was taking the club in that funny direction. We weren't great on the pitch. You know, we had quite an average squad. And uh, yeah, it just came along at the right time for sure. And I looked at some of the attacking players that you played with at Tramia, like of Ian Hume and Stuart Barlow, Jason Kumas. I mean, that must have been a real step up from facing Rogerio and training, for example. Yeah, it was. It was. We, we had, my, through my whole time at Tramia, we had great players. Ian Hume obviously played most of his career at the Championship. You know, Ryan Taylor played in the Premier League with Newcastle. He was a young lad. He was 18, 19, coming through. Bags and bags of ability. You know, you could always tell he was going to play at a higher level. It's just unfortunate he, he had quite a few injuries over the years with his knees and things. And then, yeah, latterly sort of Jason McAteer and players like that came in. And and Chomier was a good club coming from that background with John Batchelor and, and, and all that. The club was financially secure. There was a good squad. There was a good atmosphere, good training ground. And, and we, we had a first season wasn't great. But the my last season there, we, you know, we finished third. I played a good few games in that. And we should have got promoted, really. We um, beat on penalties in the playoff semi-final. We were a much better team. We just we just couldn't get that winning goal. And, and we would have played Chef Wednesday in the final. I think we'd done a double over them that season. So we really fancied it and, and we had a good squad. But all the players who, who were there went on to play at a slightly higher level or were just coming down from playing international level. So, yeah, it was a fantastic move. You, you had to wait a little bit for your debut before you came on at Cardiff, where I think you did well by all accounts from the reports I read. And you made a couple of starts against Luton and Wickham later on in your first season, both clean sheets. But the following game, John Akterberg, who was a, who was a number one, was was straight back in. Did it, did it feel a little bit like deja vu with Alan Fettis? Yeah, massive. I'm, I'm not, I don't have regrets and I'm not bitter, but wow, that, that was tough to take. I was a bit older, I was a bit more experienced. And as you say, I played away at Luton, which was terrible ground, terrible pitch. You know, fans are horrible, they're on top of you. And clean sheet, it was a solid performance. And then second game at home at Wickham, we won easy. I played well again. And, and again, it's going back to what I said earlier, confidence is growing, you're not as anxious, you're not as nervous. I turned up at Notts County away. You know, my dad travelled down to watch and fully expected to keep my place. I mean, what, what more can you do when you get an opportunity than two clean sheets? We had an outside chance of getting in the playoffs, but reality was we, we weren't good enough that season. And I remember the, the manager taking me into like the shower area and saying, look, I want to play John. And one thing I, I do think is, should I react different? I was quite accepting of it, even though I was furious inside. And I just sort of accepted it. And I, I do wonder if I'd have gone on, in on the Monday and sort of knocked on the manager's door and said, look, listen, in on, I want to play. Why aren't I playing sort of thing? I went and came out to warm up, went and saw my dad and said, I'm not playing. And, and my dad, I couldn't believe it. He was in shock as much as me. And I was a little bit unlucky again in that John was at the peak of his career. The parallels with him and Alan were incredibly close. He, he was fantastically consistent goalkeeper. He played in the championship for a large part of his career with Tramia. And he, he was consistent and he was playing well, making good saves. And he was very, very fit as well. So he didn't get injured and uh, as much as some goalkeepers do. It was deja vu. And I was stuck behind a goalkeeper again who was just playing fantastically well but that said I, I felt I'd taken my opportunity and had two clean sheets and then looking back I'd have played the rest of that season arguably I'd have ended up as the number one starting the new season and then I'd have kicked on from there so yeah it was difficult to take Yeah he played about 350 times didn't he for, for Tranmere I think he's goalkeeping coach for Liverpool now there is that kind of goalkeepers union that people talk about isn't there that, that you're all kind of close together and kind of look out for one another is it hard for you to sort of look and think are you watching a game thinking well I hope he drops that cross 
Ross and I hope he makes a mistake so I get a chance you know if that Notts County game had come in and made two howlers for example you might have been back in might you do you think like that or is it this goalkeepers union that you're all I can honestly say I never wish ill of anyone and be that injury or making a mistake obviously you want to play you want to do well you want to be successful and but I never wanted to be successful at the expense of somebody else and I think maybe that was to my detriment possibly I maybe could have been a bit more vocal at times in my career about when I wasn't playing and things and and maybe I was a little bit comfortable at times just sort of sitting on the bench and picking up good money and just not having that day-to-day pressure I know for a fact John's mindset was was very different to that John was intense and, and wanted to win that sort of battle to be the number one and there was never any bad blood or anything like that you know we worked really well together again we didn't have a full-time goalkeeping coach so spend a lot of time together and there is stories of goalkeepers who don't get on and, and can't imagine trying to work day in day out to be better and, and be fitter and, and be ready when you're sort of constantly worrying about what the other guy's doing or whether he's deliberately serving the ball bad so to make you look bad and things like that but I do often wonder whether I should have been a little bit more vocal Is it a mentality thing for being a number two because I sort of look at people like you remember Pinto he used to play for Barcelona and he used to just be sat on the bench yeah. and he Victor Valdez never never really used to miss a game and he was almost a season ticket yeah. holder for the best team in the world one of the best teams ever and, and, I, and I think apparently he's one of Messi's best mates and he's real, really funny in the dressing room and I always sort of look at him and think that, that must be the perfect yeah. job that he's got no pressure there he's picking up probably a really good salary he's probably happy to be number two but is that yeah. down to the individual do you think that some keepers are quite happy to be a number two and others pushing to be number one because there is only one spot isn't there that you, you can take I think it was difficult for me because I started so young I didn't really have a ton of experience sort of playing reserve games and then you get into your early 20s you know I'd had quite a lot of success quite early and I always felt quite pressured and and it's easy now I'm a bit older and you can reflect back and I suffered with like quite a lot of anxiety about games and things and that's why it was important for me to have a run of games so I could relax into, the, into playing a little bit more and certainly when I had a run at Tranmere and I, I relaxed into it I felt a lot better but I remember quite often before first team games just feeling absolutely drained and completely lethargic and just almost like having like an adrenaline dump before the game and, and, and having to play with that like feeling sluggish and, and it was like a, an extra challenge to sort of push through and to be honest I never really enjoyed playing games that sounds really strange to sort of say as a professional footballer I absolutely love the feeling of playing well and winning and keeping a clean sheet but the actual thought of playing games I found quite anxious and I wasn't able to eat properly and things and said I felt very sluggish so I always felt under pressure but I, I don't know if that was because I had so much so young and, and the England's label and playing quite young I'll never know I think you're absolutely right there because I, I think about myself watching like the Ashes against Australia I'm never actually sure I, I enjoy watching the Ashes I enjoy it being over and if England have won but I think the actual watching it you do get quite anxious as a fan you know wanting to win so much and I, I can understand what, what you're saying you mentioned there about the run of games you had at Tranmere and I just wanted to touch upon in that last season where you said you had a runner I think it was nine games wasn't it the start of which yeah. you came on against Hull but you got injured you came on for, for Akterberg who got injured and then you got injured yourself and I noticed that you went off at half time but you got injured in the 34th minute and Stuart Elliott was, was yellow carded for a bad challenge was that a concussion then and did you were you made to play yeah. on when, when you weren't feeling right so yeah I, I came on John did his knee and I came on and it was a big game like Hull were top I think we were third and probably arguably the two best teams in the division that year yeah it was a big game a big crowd there the KC stadium's a nice stadium and 
I remember sliding out and just feeling a, like a sharp pain on my head. And uh, I knew I'd sort of had a bang. And I went like that with my glove and sort of looked. I had like blood on my glove. Physio came on, patched me on. And I had no idea how I finished that like 10 minutes of that game. Uh, I remember leaning on the post for a corner and just having to steady myself. And when I got in the changing room, I, I couldn't even tell him my name. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what I was doing. I was looking at my glove with the blood on, just confused. And, you know, it was quite obvious I had quite a severe concussion. It was so severe. Four or five hours later, I, I still wasn't right, and I ended up spending the night in Hull Royal. I had eight stitches on my head as well. When you look at like the current climate, when you look at head injuries, the fact I was allowed to carry on just wouldn't happen now. I'd be lying if I said it didn't jump in my mind about dementia and Alzheimer's and there's quite a lot of research now that says uh, professional footballers are sort of two and a half times more likely to, to suffer with dementia or Alzheimer's than the general public and recurrent sort of concussions and, and more so outfield players hitting the ball but I can count at least four occasions where I've had concussion through tackles or I had one point blank range playing for the schoolboys when I was younger you know as I'm getting a bit older I'm nearly 40 now and it does sort of play on your mind a bit is this going to affect me later on in life it, it's, I can't do anything about it and then thankfully they're tightening up the concussion rules and things but yeah looking back it was not good playing with concussion and not safe either but again I think they have a mandatory 10 days or a mandatory 2 weeks break now if they have concussion that was quite early just before Christmas I think I was playing at Boxing Day with the stitches in and, and just carrying on as if nothing had happened. I can imagine being a bit younger as well and having to wait for your chance that long. You were probably yeah. itching to take that opportunity anyway, weren't you? Even if you had 20 stitches in your head. You moved on to Bradford City that summer, another big club. And like I said, sort of Dean Windass was there, wasn't he? And you played all of pre-season only to find that Donovan Ricketts, who'd been away on international duty, he was in between the sticks for the opening game. I mean, at this stage, is that really starting to affect your confidence now? you'd had so much success so young but but now you're kind of approaching early to mid-twenties yeah absolutely I think played that run of games in New Year to the head injury and I was out of contract that season and uh, my agent had, had spoken to Brian Little and so I said yeah we, we want him to sign on for another year we'll sort it out at the end of the season not a problem so I was confident that I'd done enough to, to get a deal we were sitting third in the league those games I played I think we only lost one in the league out of maybe eight two or three clean sheets in there two or three good performances and my, we got to the end of the season we lost in the playoffs and the gaffer called all the players in who were out of contract and he said look I think you should go try and play somewhere and I sort of was taken aback because I wasn't mentally prepared for that I would have been almost promised a deal obviously verbally promised rather than written which is the issue but it, it knocked me for six you know I was had a nice house you know I had a good set of friends a good set of teammates and I, I hadn't sort of contemplated being out of contract and not having any anywhere to go and I had again a, a decision to make and it, a sliding doors moment and so I, I had a straight choice Bradford came in a two year contract uh, matched my money I was on at Tranmere and Grimsby came in they were league two at the time the money was a bit less and it, it's easy to say it's not about money I mean we all got to live we all have bills to pay mortgages to pay etc and the, the drop in wages was not significant but it was enough to that would make things a bit tight from, from a financial point of view and Bradford said to me look it'll be a straight fight to be number one 
you know, we'll see how it goes in pre-season. And Grimsby were a little bit more, they were like, you'll be coming in as number one and you'll be playing. But Bradford was League One, Grimsby was League Two, and the lesser money. And the other thing was just the geography of it with, with living in near Liverpool and then having to move to Grimsby, I would have had to get a second house. And then with the pay cut and things, it just, just wasn't doable from a financial point of view. So rightly or wrongly, I, I decided to go to Bradford, but I, I never fully recovered, I think, from a confidence point of view. I had that sort of seed of doubt planted in, in the back of my mind. And Bradford was a club that was in a difficult position. They'd been in the Premier League two or three years earlier. Massive, massive stadium, but behind the scenes, it wasn't as well run as Tranmere. We didn't even own our own training ground. You know, they had to rent the training ground off the council. And there was a, there was loads of things. And I just never truly sort of settled. I did okay in the games I played. I could have done better in a couple of games. But yeah, I think the writing was on the wall from, from like a confidence point of view. I, I can sort of trace back. I started to struggle with my mental health a little bit around that time as well. And I think the knock I took from being released by Tramia didn't help. And yeah, the writing was on the wall at Bradford, definitely. And you did have a, a fairly good run there. They've been the team. I think you played 15 consecutive games, which was the longest run you'd had in your career to that point. And did you finally think this is it? I'm, I'm now established. Or were you kind of having that at the back of your mind thinking, well, as soon as Ricketts is fit, I'll, I'll be out again because that's kind of the way that my career has panned out so far? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think I was very conscious of how the previous clubs I'd been at had gone. Just never felt truly comfortable there. I, I, I can't really put my finger on it. Tranmere, I was comfortable and I was very happy there. They were the, the happiest start of years of my life playing football there. Bradford, we were always sort of just an average team. We never really looked like we were going to get promoted. We never really looked like we were going to do anything, make a, make a decent season of it. And then the, the last season I was there, Dino played really well. He scored quite a few goals and we were like mid-table, probably three, four points off playoffs. And I think at the time, the chairman took the money from Hull to sign their Dino, and I think they thought that we had enough to just carry on as we were. And taking Dino out that like full full cream of the team, we ended up getting relegated that season. And what the chairman got financially, he actually lost because we got relegated. But I didn't play all season. I didn't play a game. Played uh, one game in the LDVs, uh, LDV Vans Trophy, whatever it is. Uh, we got beat two one, I think, at home by Scunthorpe. And I, I just, yeah, it was just a, a waste of time. I, I saw on the bench I trained all year and just didn't play and it was almost like the final nail in the coffin uh, for my career after that and you said about mental health there uh, as well which I think it's great that so many more people talk about it these days I think it's a brilliant thing around that time when that was happening was there anyone at Bradford City that you could speak to because I think I think about Dean Windasser he suffered with mental health issues as well hasn't he and was there anyone at the club that or was that just not a thing at that time it wasn't really a thing one thing I had at Bradford I had a good set of mates um, I was actually living over near Halifax at the time and there was two guys who lived near me there was Stephen Schumacher who he now is the assistant manager at Plymouth and Mark Bridge Wilkinson who they were both midfielders Mark's at uh, Liverpool he, he works for the Liverpool Academy I think and those guys I used to socialise with them we used to travel in I had a good support network on that front I just when I trace back when things started I, I think around this time it, it started where my moods were sort of getting a bit low and I just couldn't pinpoint it and it's only like when you look back with a bit more maturity and a bit more sort of in, insight into what 
what's happening. You understand why I wasn't sleeping, why I was making decisions I was making. And culminated in a period like in my late 20s, like up to sort of probably mid 30s, where I suffered with like quite severe depression and quite crippling depression at times. And I was able to to just plough through, I suppose, and, and just carry on pretending, pretending I was okay and, you know, living with suicidal thoughts and just trying to get through life. And days where I was spending three, four days in bed between my, my work, you know, when I wasn't working. And, and people didn't really know about it. People close to me knew about it. Yeah, when I look back, literally the sort of root of that was the tail end of my career. And I, when I got released by Bradford, I went to, uh, I went and sat down with the Rochdale manager who was actually Keith Hill, who's now the Tramway manager. And that might have come off. He said, we're in for somebody else, but if that doesn't come off, come back and sign you. And then... I went and sat with the Farsley manager. I, I distinctly remember turning up at Farsley and looking around and without being disrespectful to Farsley, it's a very small non-league ground. The pitch was horrendous. And I, I'd just come from Valley Parade and obviously Tranmere was a reasonably decent ground as well. And I, I distinctly remember making a, a decision that I didn't want to do it anymore. I, I just didn't want to play anymore. And at the time I'd applied for a student paramedic job with a view to sort of doing that. And I'd been actually been offered that and I negotiated a contract with Farsley and, and you know the money was probably three quarters of what I was on at Bradford so the money was okay it was Tuesday Thursday part time I think this was just got promoted to the conference so but they were still part time but the hunger the, just the hunger and desire had gone and, and I don't think it was necessarily the hunger and desire just my confidence was so low it was just not and I just didn't have the inner strength inner fortitude to, to pick myself back up and start again at another club and when I look back, I think it was the wrong decision. I, I probably should have hung on, maybe signed a year at Farsley and, and just seen how it how it had gone there. But we'll, we'll never know, I guess. Thanks for being so open and honest. But you mentioned about the tail end of your career and losing that confidence. I, I think around that time, there, w- there was some talk about York coming in on loan for you. And, and that's something that you never did. Was it go out on loan from, from any of these clubs? W- was that ever close or is that just sort of paper tour? And do you think that would would have helped? No, that was absolutely, completely, completely true. So I had a phone call I think it was at the time when the supporters trust were involved quite a lot and I'm actually from Rickle and Steve Beck um, I don't know if you remember Steve Steve's from Rickle and uh, my, my dad knows Steve from the pub and he always followed my career and I believe that was the link between the two clubs and you know I was looking to play uh, so I had a phone call on the Monday York I forget who the, who the goalkeeper was they had a young goalkeeper and then they had the, the first team keeper who was injured or got sent off so they were like look can you come in and play Tuesday night we've got a game I was like fantastic go back to York I felt like I had a little bit of a I owed a little bit to the fans to come back just try and smooth over a difficult ending to my career at York where uh, the, the fans perhaps felt uh, a bit let down by me uh, by my actions and by the way I left um, so I thought this would be a good way to sort of also I'm a York lad, you know, I, I grew up watching York. Chance to go back there was was fantastic. So, yeah, I drove back to my mum's on the Monday night, stayed overnight, and then I got a phone call on Tuesday morning, obviously preparing for the game. And the conference had blocked the signing of the loan because they said that the first year pro that they had on the books, that meant that they couldn't make an emergency loan signing for a goalkeeper. So, <laughs> just another example of my career where something that was out of my hands, I could have gone to York and played six games played really well and, and kicked on again from there and it was just frustrating but yeah and it also feels like a missed opportunity to go back and, and play for York again One of those sliding doors moments
performance, isn't it? Like that he talked about earlier. You chose to yeah. retire at, at 25, like like you mentioned. And I, I look back at a quote that Neville Southall said about you when he when he was at York as, as a coach, and he said you would be a great kick goalkeeper, whether it's two years down the line, five years down the line, or ten years down the line. And I, I wonder whether that ever crossed your mind because keepers do tend to get better as they get older, don't they, with the more experience. And 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 did you ever think about coming back out of retirement when you were say 28 or something like that? No, when when I sort of turned the Farsley thing down, basically when you get released, or I don't know if it's still like but when you got released all those years ago, your name gets circulated on a list of released players. So all of the clubs get a copy of this list with your phone number and, and your name and your position and etc. So for probably three months after I left Bradford, I, you know, my phone was ringing pretty consistently with offers to, to carry on playing. Uh, I had an offer from uh, Staleybridge, who were, uh, I think, Conference North then, to, to go play for them. That was sort of two months after I left Bradford and that was pretty convenient. I was living at home first at the time, so, you know, it was only over the Pennines. But the, the problem was it was taken out of my hands a bit because I went to become a paramedic and that means you're working weekends and working nights and it means it's incredibly difficult to commit to a club. Even like lower down the league where that's acceptable, where, where people work. I never felt comfortable sort of being in that position where you're just walking in and out of the team when, whenever you're sort of out working and stuff. And I had a lot of offers over the years to, to go play at Pickering and Selby and places like that. Uh, Jimmy was the, the Pickering manager. I remember him uh, ringing me up and saying, uh, when are you going to come and play for me? And there's Jimmy Reid. When are you going to come and play for me? And I just remember joking, saying, you can't afford me, Jim. And uh, he, he said, how much? I said, give me 500 a week and I'll come play for you now. And he started laughing and said, piss off. They were paying probably 50 quid a week at the time. But yeah, just never in a position to sort of go back to it later down the line and then stop playing and you lose a bit of fitness, you put a bit of weight on and just and the opportunity. So and I think when you've been out of the game sort of six months a year, it's incredibly difficult to, to kickstart, you know, unless you've sort of dropped lucky. And yeah, I just transitioned away and I, I was quite fortunate that I transitioned into a career that was incredibly challenging, incredibly demanding and also it gave me a focus away from football. So I didn't, I didn't have time to think about it too much. How hard was that transition? Because footballers train in the morning by all accounts, don't they? And then the rest of the day is their own and sometimes having a, a day off in the week as well. Whereas being a paramedic, I imagine it's from one end of the spectrum to the other, isn't it? It's so many hours and uh, I mean, I'm sure ultimately rewarding as well the work that yeah. you're doing, but it must have been difficult for you physically and, and mentally, I would imagine. Yeah, it was difficult. When you're a footballer, you live a very sheltered existence. You don't. Originally, when I applied for the student paramedic, well, I never had a job interview. You know, I was 24, 25, and never had a job interview. That's quite unusual for most people. And, you know, I, I went into that sort of studying a degree in, in paramedic science and having to adapt to sort of being a, a normal person, for want of a better term, you know, where you, you have to sort of work 12-hour days or, you know, 10-hour shifts and have everything done for you. You live a very closeted life as a footballer. You get told what to do all the time. You get told what time to be, where, where you need to be. You even get dictated to when you can have a holiday. You have a set period of time where you have a holiday and did enjoy being free from that sort of bound of, of being told what to do all the time. And I remember it being quite a novelty, being tired and being able to <laughs> book a few days off the next week. So there was perks to it. But yeah, ultimately, I, I came out of football too early. I, I should have hung in there. But yeah, it was a culmination of, of everything, culmination of low confidence, poor mental health and just wrong wrong place, wrong time. Well, Russ, it's, it's been an absolute journey. I think that this interview, it's been fascinating to hear hear your insights of the successes and, and things that you've struggled with and I, and I really appreciate your open and honesty about those issues and I hope you've enjoyed reminiscing over your career and, and even though you do have regrets in there, the highs of playing for England and playing for the, the mighty York City at 17 certainly a lot of dreams for supporters so uh, I hope
hope you've enjoyed it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I still follow York's results. You know, I was at Wembley both times when they did a double. I have a strong affinity for York. It's my hometown club. I'm not alone in saying I want success for the club. I want, I want the club back in the league. I'm massively gutted about Boven Crescent. It's got unbelievable memories for me, not just from a playing point of view, but also, you know, doing my apprenticeship there. I lost count how many hours I've spent in the tunnel and in the changing rooms. And I'm not massively sold on the new stadium. That not trying to be negative. I just, I love Boven Crescent. I think that type of ground with that type of history is a dying breed and to move out of there I think it's disappointing that fans haven't had a chance to say a proper goodbye but you know it is what it is and hopefully it will kickstart the club from a financial point of view and to get better players in and get up the league we all want them back in the league absolutely thanks Russ Well, I think there's been honest and there's been brutally honest, isn't there? And Russ Howarth definitely fits into that latter category. I mean, what a great open and honest and refreshing insight there into being a footballer. And I really admire his openness and stuff like mental health and concussion as well. Not knowing what your name is when you're going to the dressing room at halftime, having played for an extra 10 minutes there after being kicked in the head is not good by any stretch. And particularly when you're hearing about the likes of uh, Gordon McQueen recently, you, you can understand why Russ has those sort of worries. And it's good to see people talking about stuff like that and York City's very own Dan Parsler doing a lot to kind of champion the research that should be put into concussion. Also, huge thanks to Paul Bowser, the new club's official historian. He sponsored this episode. And it's quite nice, given that Paul has kind of picked up the mantle from the late Dave Batters, who was a club historian for many years. And as you probably know, he had a long association with York Hospital Radio as well. So it was really nice to have that crossover with Paul sponsoring an episode. You also might know him from his books as well. He, he had a sold-out book about Boven Crescent that came out a couple of years ago. And he's got a new one coming out in sort of late spring. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Next week, we're looking at releasing two episodes in a, in a week. So that'll be Paul Stancliffe up first and, and Gary Ford, both of them club legends in different eras. Like I say, we'll start with Paul Stancliffe. 45 years service he's given to the game of football, which I think is an incredible effort. And hearing his thoughts about that football journey is, is something I'm, I'm really privileged to, to have done. So look out for that next Sunday. Finally, thanks again to you, the listeners, for continuing your support of the podcast. The download figures seem to grow series on series as more people engage with it, which is really nice. And you know, I never tire of, of reading any of the comments that people leave on Facebook or, or Twitter, uh, particularly as this is it's not my full-time job. This is something we do I do on the side. And nothing better, to be fair, when, when I've had a, a difficult day at work or a long day at work and come home and, and look at some of the, the messages that people have, have said about their enjoyment of the podcast. So, so thanks for that and do keep them coming if you feel I warrant it. So thanks again and see you next week.